Amen. Well, let's turn together tonight to 2 Peter chapter number 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And we will be looking primarily at verses 4 through 9. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. And I want to draw your attention to verse number 9. And I trust that even just the reading of this verse will encourage you, that it will comfort you, it will remind you of the goodness of our God, remind you of the goodness of His promises, and the surety, the surety of His promises. Verse 9 of 2 Peter 2, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. The Lord knoweth. We could park on that phrase alone and could speak for hours. The Lord knoweth. What does the Lord know? He knows all things. He knows the innermost thoughts of my heart. He knows the thoughts that I haven't even had yet. He knows what tomorrow holds. He knows what yesterday was. He knows exactly because He is God. And He knows. But we see here that Peter is declaring a very important truth in the midst of this chapter that primarily deals with false prophets and those who would corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ. It declares that one of these great truths, one of these great things that the Lord knows how to do, again, that's speaking in the manner of men, the Lord doesn't have to learn how to do anything, but the Lord knows how to deliver. How to deliver whom? The godly. To deliver the godly out of what? Temptations. He knows how to deliver the godly, the righteous, out of temptations, and yet on the same hand, reserve the unjust or the unrighteous unto the day of judgment. There's a principle in verse 9 that I think is so important for us to grasp. is wherever you see God delivering the righteous, at the same time or simultaneously, there's a promise of delivering the unrighteous into judgment. He delivers the righteous into the glories of His presence. He delivers the unrighteous or reserves them unto the day of judgment. In verses 4 through 9, Peter is giving us three examples of that truth. Three examples where God knew how to deliver the godly, the righteous, yet simultaneously delivering up the unrighteous or the ungodly. Now, this might sound so simplistic that you're going to say, I can't believe you even said it. But this is how my mind thinks, and I hope your mind will enjoy and appreciate the simplicity. God knows how to deliver because He's already done it. He's already done it repeatedly. He's already done it today. He's already delivered you from something today. He maybe has delivered, delivered you from something in the last hour. He may have delivered you from something today that you had no idea was even there, was even happening to you. 
You couldn't even identify what was happening, but God knows how to deliver. Now, why was Peter writing to these scattered believers? Second Peter is not a scathing rebuke of believers, but rather it's a comforting epistle. We are to be comforted by the fact that the Lord knows how to deliver the righteous out of temptation and how to reserve unto judgment the unrighteous. These are spoken so that we as believers tonight would be comforted with what context? The context we've been talking about for the last three weeks on Wednesday concerning these false teachers and the wickedness that's arising in our midst. The Lord, a promise, is that he will deal with them in due time. But while he waits to deal with them, I want you to remember this truth. He is delivering you continually. You are daily being delivered. You are being delivered from this present evil world we spoke about on Sunday. You are no longer under the bondage of Satan and sin no longer has dominion over you. When God sends destruction, and these three examples we'll look at tonight, when he sends destruction on the ungodly, he commands deliverance for the righteous. Time after time after time, especially in the Old Testament, we see God delivering his people while destroying at the same time those who were against them. The most obvious one is the Red Sea, as God, through Moses, delivered uh, the people across the Red Sea only to have all of Pharaoh's army and himself drowned. It's a perfect example of God delivering the righteous while at the same time destroying the unrighteous. Throughout the scripture, we see God pouring out judgment against heresy. We see him pouring out judgment against idolatry. We see God not accepting evil, but at times not dealing with it according to our time frame. That's what these verses are really about. Peter gives us three examples of how God has done just that. How God delivered while at the same time either reserving for judgment or destroying at that very moment. Now, if you look with me at verse 4, again, the context is these false teachers. The context is those who would corrupt the gospel. But notice he says, and these two words are very important. They seem insignificant. For if, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Just stop for a minute and think about what Peter is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit about the significance of the for if. We have already stated and we've already looked at how important it is for us to know that the ungodly, the unrighteous, based upon the scriptures, have already shown us that those who deceive or corrupt or pervert the church or God's people cannot escape God's vengeance. They cannot escape God's judgment. There has never been an unrighteous man or woman who has ever escaped God's judgment. There never will be. That for if, notice we see, it's for if God. Now it's important to understand that it is God who is the one who has delivered the righteous 
and as also the one who carries out the judgment. God is both the deliverer of the righteous unto his glory, and he's also the deliverer of the unrighteous, the ungodly, unto judgment. He proves that by giving these three examples of God's judgment. Now, because Peter is writing to believers, there are a couple of things that were, should be assumed. These three examples, now this might be an exception to our younger kids that are here today. These three examples, as believers, you should already know those narratives. You should know about the angels that fell. You should know about Noah and the flood. You should also know about what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. So tonight, I'm not going to rehash or retell those stories because Peter is making an assumption that believers already know these stories. You already know these three examples. You already know these three deliverances and at the same time, God pouring out judgment on the wicked. But what I do want us to look at is I want us to see how we can take comfort in knowing that in each one of these deliverances of God's people, we can take comfort in knowing that one day these false teachers, those who corrupt and pervert the gospel of Christ, will not escape either. So we see that the Bible clearly says that he spared not the angels. He spared not the world by a flood. He spared not Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that he poured out fire and brimstone. He burned it to the ground in addition to the neighboring cities. But Peter thinks it's sufficient enough to take for granted what you ought to already know, what you and I should have no doubts about. Tonight, you should not have a doubt in your mind that God is the ultimate judge of the whole world. He's the ultimate judge of even the unbeliever. And every person will give account to God. Whether a man acknowledges God or not, the atheist is going to stand before God. But Peter is assuming, believers, you scattered Jews and Gentiles alike, remember these stories. Remember that God is the judge of the world, and it follows that these punishments that were formally inflicted on the ungodly will also, he is going to inflict on even those who he has not yet poured out that vengeance on, including these false prophets. For God cannot ever be unlike himself. What I mean by that is, is God can never act contrary to his nature. God cannot one time show respect of persons as to forgive the same wickedness in one which he has already punished in another. In other words, he can't act contrary. God cannot misjudge a circumstance and he cannot misjudge a situation. If he pours out judgment on one for that sin, he's going to pour out judgment on another for that same sin. He's not going to show respect of persons and says, well, it's that person, so I have to spare them. Go all the way back to these angels. It's interesting to me that he mentions the angels first. Because angels, he spared not the angels that did what? Sin. He didn't spare them. He never considered sparing them. He never once considered, wait a minute, these are created beings. I created these beings myself. I'm going to overlook their sin. It says, no, he didn't even spare the angels. 
that sinned. Now we could argue and debate, and I think it would be of no profit, about, okay, what angels are he, is he talking about? Here's what he's talking about. Angels who sin are not spared. These fallen angels did not receive a respect because of their dignity or because of who they were. Why were the angels created? The angels were ultimately created to obey and serve God. What happened to these angels? They sinned. Where did they go? They fell. We always have to keep in mind that there is a difference between God and us. You say, well, there's another obvious moment, Pastor. I'm not sure we always truly think about that. There's a difference between God and us. God and man. Man judges unequally. You and I are unequal judges. You will make an exception in the life of someone else, often based upon who they are. You and I show respect of persons all the time. We'll overlook something in someone near us where someone else, we might condemn them. If it's our child, for example, you parents know exactly what I'm talking about. You might overlook something your child does, but if someone else's child does it, you say they should, they should have the total infliction of the maximum penalty placed upon them, but not my child. Let's be honest. We all think that way. Or we say this, my child could not have done that. My child's not capable of doing such heinous thoughts or deeds. See, God doesn't judge that way. So when you think about the fallen angels and you think about Sodom and Gomorrah and you think about the worldwide flood, Peter wants us to understand something about this, that God did not unequally judge that circumstance. There's always the question in the Old Testament, because people say the Old Testament is so bloody and violent. How did God think it was right to take out women and children? How did God wipe out whole, na whole nations and whole cities in judgment? Did God have a right to do that? God has a right to do with his creation whatever he chooses to do. He doesn't unequally judge it. So there's a difference between us and God. If God forgives sins, for if, if God forgives sins, it's done only through that which has come through repentance and faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't forgive sin any other way. So if you think God's going to make an exception because someone is high ranking, well, they don't have to repent and place faith in Christ or don't have to trust in that. No, he cannot accept them unequally and say, you're forgiven, even though your faith is not truly in Jesus Christ. That would make God acting contrary to his nature. He can't do that. The only way man can be reconciled to a holy God, the only way a sinner can be reconciled to a holy God is through the justification that comes through his son and his shed blood and his merits. The only way we can stand before this holy God is when sin has been paid for, sin has been forgiven. There will not be a single person in eternal glory who's there with unforgiven sin. The only way a man, a woman, can stand in the presence of God is an unforgiven sin. Or in forgiving, forgiven sin, rather. Sin places a gulf between us. Discord. So an unforgiven person cannot stand in the presence of God. He is at a distance. He can't approach Him. 
Sin that is forgiven through the blood and the merits of Jesus Christ, now he can enter into the presence of God. So if a person does not see a need of Christ, then they have to hold to one truth and one truth that they believe to be true only. If a person says, I don't see a need of Christ, then that, that person holds to their own personal righteousness, their own merit. So an unbeliever, a false prophet who doesn't see the need for Christ, is an unforgiven sinner. No matter how godly, no matter what words they may use, that's why I read Matthew 7, even if they say, Lord, Lord, Jesus himself said, false prophets will arise. God delivers the righteous and reserves the unrighteous for the day of judgment. Now again, notice he starts with the angels. He did not excuse their sin. He did not let them escape. But Peter just simply mentions the fall of the angels. Notice how quickly he makes mention of them and he moves on. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and then he moves on to the next that he did not spare. He doesn't name the time. He doesn't name the manner in which these circumstances were. But this is something we should think very humbly about. He spared not. You that are in Christ today, God has spared you. He spared not the angels that sinned. He spared not the old world. He spared not the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet we get to that man in verse 7 in just a few moments and delivered just Lot. Peter reminds us that we really should be satisfied with what the Bible says about certain things. I am all for digging as deep as you can, but I am also against, and I think we all should be against, speculation that does not edify. You realize you can over-speculate the Scriptures. You realize you can become so enamored with your discovery or desire for discovery that it loses edification. In other words, instead of taking God at his word that says the angels he did not spare who sinned, he didn't spare them, we get more caught up into, well, let's find out every detail about those angels that fell and try to get all the intricate details. Not that those things don't matter, but do you understand the emphasis is not on all the details, it's on the fact that God did not spare the angels that sinned. So it leads you to the automatic conclusion if he didn't spare the angels who sinned, why is he going to spare anybody who sins? Why would he spare anybody of high rank? Why would he spare anybody who is just considered to be untouchable? He wouldn't. These created beings, angels are created beings. People do not die. And I'm telling you folks, because you already know this, you should know this, people don't become angels. My relatives that have gone on to glory did not become an angel. They didn't get their wings. Angels are created beings. They were created before the foundation of the world. These beings were created 
to obey and serve God. And yet the Bible says they sinned and God didn't spare them. He cast them down to hell and delivered them. Notice again, delivering the righteous, delivering the unrighteous unto chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. That's the first of two times that the word reserve or reserved is used. In verse 9, the word reserve, and that's an important word. I just want you to keep in your mind for a minute. What is useful to us, God has made known to us. You realize what God wants us to know, he's given us. The angels sinned. Some would say they fell because they wanted to be like God. Some would say they fell because of pride. But here's what's true. They were created to serve and obey God. The reason the angels fell was because they sinned because they refused to submit to the authority of God, which means their sin cannot be ascribed to God. Their sin is ascribed to them. They are responsible for their sin. Peter declares clearly the angels fell. Now the book of Jude gives us a little bit more insight. Jude is clear when he says about these angels. Jude 1.6 says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Jude is confirming what Peter said about these angels. They are held and reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until what? until they are delivered unto judgment. These chains of darkness, again, here's where you can get over-speculative. Chains of darkness, I want you to think about it scripturally, is a metaphor that's describing that these angels are held bound. They're held bound in some fashion, some way in darkness until when? Well, the Bible tells us. To be reserved unto judgment, Jude says, unto the judgment of that great day. They're being held. They are put down, cast down. Now, there is a, a lot of commentators who made this same comparison. I thought this was very interesting. Is that this comparison of the chains of darkness is taken from the concept or the principle of a condemned criminal. Now, there's criminals and then there's condemned criminals. If you're arrested for a crime, it may not be one that is worthy of death. If you're a condemned criminal, you're one that not only committed a crime, but your crime is worthy of death. They're talking about this chains of darkness. To think about it this way is like a prisoner after being condemned suffers half of their punishment in prison, chains, right? Until they are taken from that prison and then are executed. So how do we think about these angels that fell? They are bound in chains of darkness like a condemned criminal awaiting the next step, which is what? Final judgment. At the same time, not only do we learn about what happens to these angels, but what should we be doing in the midst of these things? If we are the godly, if we are the righteous, while this condemned criminals, these angels who sinned, await the next step, we are to calmly rest in the hope and sure blessedness of being in Christ. 
Our mindset should not be anything like the condemned criminal. Our mindset should be like a person who believes that there is a deliverance because the Lord knows how to deliver us. We don't see it all yet. You see, the condemned criminal is waiting for the next step, which is judgment. We're waiting for the next step, even though we can't see it yet, but we're going to see that eternal glory and the presence of God. Quickly, he moves on again. We're not going to review this story because this story is familiar, but notice the same wording, verse 5, and spared not the old world, but saved, delivered Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Here's that example again. Delivers the righteous at the same time or simultaneously delivering the unrighteous. The old world is a reference back to God as drowning the entire human race. After that, he forms this new world, right? So if they did not escape this divine wrath, if those other than those eight who were on that ark did not escape that flood, why is God, again, even though he makes a promise, he's not going to flood the world again. But he still makes a promise that there is a judgment to come. If he did not spare the old world, why would you think now he's going to spare the false prophets and those who pervert and corrupt the gospel of Christ? And you say, I don't really think that. Well, you might be surprised that maybe you do think that. Maybe we do get drawn into a mindset that's not proper. It's almost like we forget, wait a minute, we're in reserve for a glorious future. All the ungodly are reserved unto the day of great judgment, but we're living like we're condemned criminals. Instead of saying, wait a minute, the Lord knows how to deliver because he's already done it. We've got two examples now. If you count the example of Moses, you've got three. Notice he said eight. The eight were the only ones that survived that worldwide flood. We know what the ark was a picture of. But it doesn't matter how few or many there are, those ungodly will be punished. That's why we read Matthew 7 again. There will be few that find it. Now that doesn't mean that there's going to be few that are saved. Right? Don't, get this, don't get this mindset in your, in your mind that God's only going to save a few of us. Don't get your cult, cult view going saying there's only 144,000 that are reserved. And No. What He's promising us and He's guaranteeing us is that there are those that are His that He has delivered. He's going to do it again because He's done it over and over and over again. Note, Noah is saved. Saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. Why is Noah called a preacher of righteousness? What was Noah doing? What, what, are, what are all preachers doing? When you preach the gospel, what are we doing? We're preaching that mankind would be restored. That they would be brought to a proper mind. They would be brought to a place where they repent of their sins and they trust in Christ. But Noah building the ark also testified against the wicked. Now again, sometimes sadly, our mind has been so twisted 
by watered-down Sunday school material that we think Noah's Ark was one thing and what was happening was not. And there are so many horrible movies that have been made about it that are not even close to being biblical. And too many Christians are getting their theology from media. The real story, the real narrative is much different than what you see being put out there. The intent of Peter here is not to rehash or retell you the story of Noah, the ark, and the flood. The intent is he is setting before us this holy, righteous, perfect God who is going to take out wrath against the wicked to encourage us to stand fast. This is not so much about what happened with the flood? What happened to Noah? It's about God's delivering. He delivered those eight. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. And he moves on to the next one. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Look, there's that word again. Condemn them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after, now notice this, who was the message intended for? Should live ungodly. This wrath that he poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah was meant to be an example to those ungodly people. Sodom and Gomorrah is not as much about you and I as it is about this is a message to you, ungodly, unrighteous, this is what happens. The same God that knows how to deliver and will deliver the righteous is promised, is guaranteed, he will pour out his vengeance at the appointed time, at the appointed hour, use Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of the wrath of God. When the scripture speaks of this universal destruction of the ungodly, we even use this. It's amazing. You'll even hear people in the world who use the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, who've never darkened the door of a church and never opened a Bible. They know the story. Why do they know that story? Because they went to Sunday school that morning? No. It is not a secret what God is going to do and what God is doing. And especially for you and I as believers, we should not be acting like we don't know how this goes. So what does that mean for us today? Well, look around. Do, did you come across anybody, and again, let's not be so prideful about this, did you come across ungodly things today? Ungodly people? Did you have the response, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly from these temptations and how to reserve unto judgment the ungodly? Or did you say, this world keeps getting darker and darker, I don't know how much longer I can stand. Because that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing more Christians that are claiming the promise that God knows how to deliver. They're just cowering away and saying, I, I just don't know if I can take this anymore. I don't know if I can live in this world that's growing darker and darker. But that's not how you're supposed to live. You're supposed to live as one who is awaiting what God's already promised to do. He's promised he's going to deliver you from this. But I'm going to, I'm going to shake our, our cage a little bit in a moment that God is doing this in many ways to strengthen us and to test our faith to see if it's real. 
and to purify it. See, some of these things you're praying for God to take you out of is part of his purposes and plans to strengthen you. When you have to go out in an ungodly world and you say the answer is I just need to get away from all the ungodliness, you may just very well be trying to move God's providential hand and sovereignty in your life. He may be strengthening you with that. Now, I'm not talking about you going and being a part of it, but being around it. Because I think we're getting this mindset, I mentioned this on Sunday, the Martin Luther mindset, when he, before he really understood this, we just all need to be monks. Not theologically, but we just, need a, we just need some compounds around the world that all the believers can just kind of go and hide out. It's not the way it was ever intended. Peter points out that the chief aim and the image of Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood and the falling of these angels was that his, the Lord has designed that his wrath against sin and the ungodly is to be made known to all generations. Again, unbelieving people talk about the Red Sea crossing. They know the story of Moses. They know Egypt. What's the message? He redeemed his people, he delivered his people, and he destroyed those ungodly people. He's setting forth a picture. When we were praying a minute ago, or even mentioning, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Not that they might prevail, they will not prevail. The church of Jesus Christ is never, ever, ever going to be defeated or go away. So don't live like it is. And if you're in a church that's hanging on with two or three people, then you keep hanging on. That doesn't mean the gates of hell are prevailing against it. I'm telling you what, there is nothing that will strengthen your faith more than to just sit with three or four or five people month after month, year after year, and say, look, there's not many of us, but we believe the promises of God, and we're going to stay and stand because His deliverance is sure. But you have to know what His promises are. Jude, again, not by coincidence, makes mention of this same account about Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude 1.7, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, notice they gave themselves over to fornication. God did not make them sin. They gave themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. It's meant to be an example. Now look at verse 7. And deliver just lot. Now the word just there doesn't mean one person. It means what you think it means. Just lot. Justified lot. Now I will tell you, over the years, and in my own personal study, I have had a complete change of how I viewed Lot. And I think if you dig deep enough and you start looking at Lot's life and you start looking at even going all the way back to the choices and going back to some of the things that he did, I think we read into the story sometimes and make more out of it than what it really is. Not that there were not some voluntary things he did wrong, not that there wasn't some things that he did that we stand back and we say, what is he thinking? But I want you to understand something. Don't put yourself in such a category that you think you're above Lot. 
and start saying, wait a minute, Lot did some ungodly things. I'm going to tell you right now, everybody in this room has done some ungodly things. You've done some ungodly things this week that you don't want anybody to know about. So be very careful that you say, I can't believe he delivered Lot. Do you see what he did with his daughters? Do you see what's happening? But then you also see these glimpses of Lot doing the right thing. You see these glimpses of even Lot warning his own wife about not looking back. And yet she looked back. What happened to her? Pillar of salt. Peter is mentioning these things. And notice what he talks about Lot. He says, vexed. Just Lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Lot was not hunkered down and saying, I just want to take in with a shovel all the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah I can. That's not what he means here. What he means is, is he was, his, his soul was vexed by what he saw. He, he, was, he was not comfortable there. Vexed with the filthy conversation, notice what it says, of the wicked. Just Lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. We see these things. We hear these things, right? And he's, he's, he's vexed by what he sees. Peter is expressing a little bit more about Lot. The more that he saw around him, the more vexed he became. But I'm gonna, I want to challenge you with something. And again, I'm, 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 I'm not challenging you with anything that I'm not challenging myself with. But when we see the wickedness around us and we like Lot are vexed with the wickedness of society, what it ought to drive us to do is examine our own life and examine our own sin and examine our own hearts and test our own faith. Look, I'm gonna say this and I'm trying to say this carefully. There are some that we are preaching very, very hard against the sins of society. We are calling out the sin of everybody else, and our hearts are as filthy as all get out, and yet we're telling other people to repent of their sins, and we as believers, our, sin, our, our hearts are not as they should be. It's the whole thing. We are pointing out the speck in another eye, and we've got a giant beam of ungodliness in our eye that we're just ignoring. Notice it's the Lord that knows how to deliver. Now, I know we think we're going to be the one that's going to deliver all these wicked sinners. No, it's going to be the same God who delivered you. The only reason you're not a sinner condemned to hell right now is because God knew how to deliver you and he saved you. You see, I'm afraid we've, we've looked at these Bible characters for so long that we've already we've 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 come to the conclusion on them and we've decided here's who was righteous here was who was unrighteous this is a good example this is a bad example here's who you pattern your life after let me tell you this every single righteous person in this book was delivered by God himself the apostle paul is still Saul and he's wanting to kill christians if god doesn't deliver him and you and i are no better than the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, but for the grace of God. So when you look at the vileness and the wickedness all around this world, just remember the only reason you're not like that is because God delivered you because he knew how to deliver you. You see, Peter 
is trying to instruct us here that even when we sit, we see sin prevailing and we see the allurements of society, we understand that, listen, God has delivered us from this. Again, be reminded, the only difference between the residents of Sodom and Lot himself was the grace of God. That's the only difference. And every saved sinner, if you're his, there's a promise of deliverance. And then verse 9, where we started. Verse 8, that righteous man, that's reference back to Lot, dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Sounds a lot like the world in which we live. I know a lot of people say America is the new Sodom and Gomorrah. But sin, God is dealing with it and will deal with all sin. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust on the day of judgment to be punished. What offends the believer the most is that when we see these things happening and we don't receive the immediate help that we think we need, we begin to question, is God truly going to do anything? Folks, the Bible says that we are going to be chastened. We're chastened because he loves us. God's chastening is not limited to what you think it might be limited to. Go back and study your Bible. How many times did God raise up a wicked nation against Israel to instruct them? How many times did God raise up a leader with the purpose who was wicked to test his people? See, we somehow begin to think all this stuff and all this darkness and all this sin God's not the author of that, but do you think that God cannot use that as an example of this is what I do? You see, we begin to think, why is God silent? I've been praying for God to deliver us from this wickedness. I've been praying that God would put an end to all this LGBTQ. I've, I've been praying that God would put an end to, to all this uh, taking God out of the schools. And God just doesn't seem to be dealing with it. And He seems to be losing control because we seem to be losing more and more ground. And I'm trying to tell you tonight, God is not losing ground. We are so discouraged and despondent Christians. I've, I've often wondered what unbelievers must see when they see us acting like we're getting our teeth kicked in. There is nothing happening that God has not said, I have that reserved for my judgment. And it's not for you to decide when that judgment comes and when I put an end to it, it's your responsibility, believer, to understand and obey and follow me. I said this Sunday, we're, we want to get into the deep speculative things and we're having a really difficult time following the day-to-day -day obedience to God. We're not even loving our neighbor as we should, but yet we think we're going to deliver the United States of America from its darkness of sin. No, God delivers. Has God used men? Has God used churches? Absolutely, He does. Is He dependent upon you? No. The Lord knows when it's expedient to deliver us from temptation. How many years was Israel in Egypt? 
at least 400, 400 years. Four generations of captivity. What do you think the people in the first generation must have thought? What do you think about the people right before he delivered them? We have been at this. We have been in captivity for 400 years. They would have been very tempted to say, where's God? And by the way, this darkness that you're seeing now didn't just start. And when you start to say things like back in the old days when things were better, sin was still here. Sin was just as prevalent. Some of the ungodly things that are now out in the streets was already going on behind closed doors. We act like this is a new sin. It's been going on since the foundation of the world, since Adam and Eve sinned and plunged the entire race into sin. So God knows when and how to deliver. By these words, Peter is reminding us that these things are to be left to God. Now we are told that we will find temptation. Now we'll find the temptation that is the temptation of our own sin, that we get too close to things. But there are also trials of our faith. We're not to faint during those trials. We're not to faint when the false teachers continue to rise up. We're not to faint when it appears that suddenly whole cities, whole towns, whole states, and I'm, I'm not trying to scare you tonight, but it is a possibility that this whole nation could collapse. That doesn't mean that God doesn't know how to deliver you. And I'm afraid too many Christians are saying, look, if we don't do something soon, the whole United States is going to collapse. If it collapses, it's collapsing under God's judgment and it's collapsing under God's sovereignty and providential hand. We are not living to try to save the planet in its form. We are out to continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even if the towns and the cities around us burn to the ground, we're to preach with hope. But as I've said this before, don't preach at people like you hate them. Don't preach at people like they understand everything that you're saying. Show them God. Show them who this God who delivers is. Quit trying to draw people to you and say, the Lord knows how to deliver you from your sin. The Lord knows how. This is to be a consolation because every one of us are tempted to have the thought and if you haven't thought it yet, I'm going to plant it there, so now you're going to think. Why doesn't God just gather all the good, righteous people together and put them in one place so we can just be mutually edified 24 hours a day, seven days a week? We just sing hymns all day and we just read our Bibles all day and we're all content and happy because we think that's the answer. And it's not. Why does God allow the righteous to mix with the unrighteous. I hear it all the time. We don't want to get too close to people because we'll be defiled. Jesus ate with the sinners. He didn't become the sinner. He didn't become... In, but folks, how, how, are you, how are you going to talk to people about God if you don't have interactions with people who are ungodly and unrighteous? And while you're holding up and sheltering in place... By the way, a few years ago taught you, you don't really like that. So why do you want to be sheltered in place now? You're supposed to be out in an environment where there are people that need to hear the gospel. I can't tell you how many times I've had people, people have said this. I mean, I know they mean good. It's good. It's well-intentioned. 
They say something like this, I would love to be able to do what you do all day. You get to just pray, and you just get to read your Bible, and you just get to sing hymns, and you get to listen to sermons. You've got it all wrong. And those memes that say, this is what people think I do, and this is what it really is, you've got it all wrong. There is not anything that you're facing that I'm not facing. I am facing the same temptations and the same struggles you are. Why? Because I got the same old, old nature that's dwelling, that's living within me. You say, yeah, but you don't know where I work. Folks, not only I may not be in that same work environment with you, but I was for many, many years. And I'm telling you, I know what it's like to go to work and to be the only one who seems to have any semblance or or understanding of who God is. I know what it is to be made fun of because I prayed or made fun of because I said something about God. I'm convinced there are things God left me in before I ever was called to pastor. He left me in to teach me so that I would have an understanding when people say, Pastor, what do I do when I work in an ungodly environment? And I can look back and I can say, I know exactly what it is to work in an ungodly environment where you're the only saved person on the floor. I know what it is. I've seen it. I lived it. And I'm telling you, God knows how to deliver you. And the answer is not always just removing you from it. When God claims, when God gives us and he takes that right to himself, he's promised to protect us. He's promised to guide us. He's promised to deliver us. Shouldn't that make you and I want to be more diligent in fighting the good fight of faith? Shouldn't make us cower. We should say, look, God knows how to deliver me and he will deliver me from this temptation, from this ungodliness when he sees fit to deliver me. What if he doesn't? What if you work 50 years in an ungodly work environment? Is God wrong? Does it mean that you're wrong? No. You might just be the very, <laughs> the very individual place there to speak truth in that business. Temptations, how to deliver us. It's prescribed by the Lord. Our various temptations, even when we're tried and we're tempted, we are to have the hope because the promises that God will deliver. But then notice, Peter shows us that God also regulates his judgments, that he's only bearing with the wicked what appears to be for a time, but he will not leave them unpunished. Why did you think Peter had to add that on the inspiration of the Spirit? Because I think he believed he still has to correct what we were tempted to believe. But what about the ungodly? Yes, I can get it. We're going to be delivered. But what about the ungodly? Why the delay? When we begin to question the delay, we put ourselves in the place of being the judge. This temporary delay, humanly speaking, against wickedness, that should not disturb you at all. As a matter of fact, it should just remind us of what Peter says. There's a day of judgment that's already been reserved. There is an appointment that they cannot cancel. 
there's an appointment that even you and I will stand before God one day. You can't cancel that appointment. The ungodly, the unrighteous have an appointment to stand before God. And even as Philippians said, one day they will bow the knee. The wicked are not going to escape punishment, though it's not immediately appearing to be inflicted. There is an emphasis on the word to reserve. It simply means that it is reserved for a future time. Remember, the angels were hidden, he said, by chains of darkness, waiting the final condemnation. They are reserved or kept to be punished. Peter is imploring to you and I to rely on the expectation of the last judgment of God to set everything right and in order. That's our hope. That's, that's what we stand upon. And I know, I know we think, I believe that, I truly do, when we're in an environment like this. But I'm telling you, in a few minutes when we say amen and we walk out the doors, all of these things come flooding right back to us. Do we really believe what he just said about this? Evil may and will abound. Now let me give you some bad news. I, I appreciate your patience because I've gone a long time, but we're going to get through this. Evil is going to abound. False teachers are going to increase. But our God promises in His Word that He has a people who are chosen by Him, who've been redeemed by His Son, They've been called and they're sanctified by the Spirit of God. And Jude 1.24 says, He will keep them from falling. I read that as a benediction probably every other month. He is able to keep you from falling. While at the same time, He's reserving in what we appear, what we think is His delayed judgment or His delayed punishment the ungodly, just as sure as our deliverance into eternal glory is, the surety of the deliverance of the ungodly, the unrighteous, to the day of judgment, to the wrath of God is just as sure, no matter how dark the day gets. But I'm going to tell you this, I do believe that with every fiber of my being, this word of God says that this kingdom of God is big. This kingdom of God, there are going to be thousands, millions, I don't know, billions of people who are in the kingdom of God. And when you see all these influences, just remember, most, even most unbelieving people, okay, I'm going to say this as carefully as I can, don't even support the darkness of some of the things that are happening. It's still a very small group Yet their voice is the loudest. Right? Whose voice should be the loudest in this society? The church. No one's looking at the church because the church is sitting on its hands. The church is afraid to speak up because they're afraid they're going to lose something. They're afraid we're going to lose our tax exempt status. We're going to lose something. Look, all we're going to speak and preach is the truth. Right? Not philosophy, not politics what the Bible says. The Bible says he has reserved in judgment the ungodly, the unrighteous, and at the same time, he knows how to deliver the righteous. And we're going to continue to proclaim the same thing we proclaim every single service. Repent and believe the gospel. 
not an adapted version, not an amended version, not a watered-down version. Repent and believe the gospel. It is the truth of God. Amen. Well, let's finish tonight by singing the hymn on page number 84.